We came across a fascinating account of an archaeologist called David Whitley, who has spent a lifestyle researching the earliest known works of art in the caves of France, all of which were made 10 to 40,000 years ago. Whitley says humans seem to have emerged around 1,70,000 years ago. But for more than 100,000 of those years, it appears that we were not so artistic. Artistic genius, he says, appears to have emerged in man only around 40,000 years ago. Whitley got interested in why this art is happening at all. This was not the kind of art where you could say that it was done to record events. It has been established that they were done by shamans, who were mystics, medicine men. We call them the ancients. People have always believed the shamans had powers, that they could enter altered states of consciousness or trance, what we in yoga call different states of Samadhi. The archaeologists found that across all continents, everywhere the ancient shamans were artists. They were poets, dancers, singers and painters. Whitley says archaeologists have also found that historically shamans were widely considered to be mentally ill when we take modern psychiatric diagnostic criteria and analyze the accounts of the shamans, it tells us that shamans suffered from mood disorders, manic depression and bipolar disease, where your mood alternates between intense states of excitement and arousal and deep withdrawal. In 2011, in a large-scale, well-known research undertaken by Karolinska Institute Sweden involving 1.2 million people, it was found that there exists a close and high correlation between mood disorders and unusual levels of creativity and artistic genius. Of course, this does not mean that a mood disorder is needed for you to be an artist. It has also been found that mood disorders are inherited and they affect around 6% of the population. So they are not so sure and they are linked to malfunctions in the biochemistry of neurotransmitters. Chemical messengers in the brain, serotonin, dopamine and norepinephrine. And here is the most interesting part Whitley says, research on the genetic history of mood disorders tells us the three of the gene variants that control our serotonin and our dopamine systems mutated between 40 and 50,000 years ago, essentially at the same time as this first great art. And what that tells us is that some of the genes that control mood disorders appeared at the same time as artistic genius. 
Whitney concludes that this becomes a positive side of mental illness. Or we could say, we need to understand mental illness better. Because the shamans were in fact people of wisdom, they were only assets to the society, but they were called mentally ill. The Karolinska Institute survey concludes, if one takes the view that certain phenomena associated with the patient's illness are beneficial, it opens the way for a new approach to treatment of mental disease. What we find interesting here is that Cezanne knowingly or unknowingly seems to have chosen to let all his imbalance emerge. He chose to live as if in a cave, let all his imbalance surface, live out his every nuance of his mental side. It seems that it was not the mutation in the genes that made him a great artist. It was his single-pointed pursuit of his artistic goal, of wanting to be able to depict nature as he experienced it. And every single day. That is all he sought to do, gradually. His life was denuded of everything except his goal. He seemed to be in a good goal state where he had become one with his goal. In the Yuga Sutra, it is called Desha Bandhastitasya Dharana. Anchored to one location is the single-pointed mind. This state facilitated the coming out and dissipation of the mental deformities, Chitta Vritti. We call this process Manashuddhi or mental cleansing. It happens when you are able to achieve regular states of single-pointedness, like when you practice Tratak or gazing regularly. You start becoming aware of the presence of the unconscious material that you didn't think existed in you. Memories, guilt, doubt, dark stuff. And as you see them, they disappear. For that is the relationship between the shadow and light. This is the first striking feature of the way yoga approaches mental health. It seems to be, don't fight states of illness. Instead, make friends with states of wellness and illness will be gone. On a practical note, the deeper practices like dharana happen when you are ready for this kind of an exercise. You cannot decide to do it like a technique. The doing follows the willingness to see, to notice all that is to be seen. Until one doesn't see the necessity of it as urgent, one won't do it. Till then, yes, each one of us seems to be vulnerable mentally. Yes, some are more likely to get mentally imbalanced because of their genes. But the main reason why mental imbalance gets nurtured seems to be an unwillingness to face them.
to notice the small things, to live a life of attentiveness. To be alive to what we are experiencing. When we look for medications, we are forced to look at a mental condition as if it was a flu virus we contacted. As if there is no responsibility on the part of the person who is ill. And the more we medicate, the more we strengthen this notion, the more toxic we get. This brings us to the question of what exactly is mental illness from the yoga point of view. Yoga does not have a word for illness. The Yoga Sutra provide us with a term called Vikshepa. Vikshepa comes from the word Kship, which means a stroke like the stroke of the painter's brush or the strokes of an engine indicating rapid and periodic movement. But what kind of stroke? By adding V, it becomes a stroke that has a scattering effect. So the word Vikshepa means distracting, diversionary. So in yoga lingo, we say vikshipta chitta, indicating a scattered mind, as opposed to ananda chitta, which very interestingly is not unscattered or focused mind. It means a joyous mind. So we get clues from here that this is not about attacking the problem of vikshepa. The approach is not attack, cut open, which then leads to an obsession with the dissection of disease. Developing expertise in what needs to be eliminated. In yoga, we talk about the pursuit of ananda. It is like saying, you don't fight the rat. Just bring the cat home and it will be taken care of by the cat. The word chip is important here. Because when you are, for example, carving clay with a knife, the stroke has many qualities which you control to get a particular effect. How much pressure you apply, the way you hit the clay, it can be mild or forceful. It can have a particular kind of a curvy or a straight movement. It can be applied at a fast pace or slowly, lightly or heavily. And there are so many other qualities of the stroke that is not easy to say in words. But the defining quality of a stroke is that it works between two ends in a rhythm, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Your skill of maintaining the limits of the strokes is very important to achieve a particular effect on clay or canvas. Chip or stroke is used to refer to this quality of the mind, a state of operating between two limits in a pattern towards a goal or purpose. 
a rhythm is formed between two opposites for this to happen, like and dislike, attraction and hatred, laziness and hyperactivity, us and them, black and white. By following this pattern, the mind works like a pendulum and gets formed in a particular pattern. To achieve a particular effect on the canvas, we need this ability of the mind to get into a pattern, to generate and apply strokes. But once the job is done, the next challenge is to break the pattern. If we can't do it, however satisfying or successful a work might be, we are stuck in a pattern, in a rut, in a habit. This state of mind is called Vikshipta Chitta, the scattered state of mind. The Yoga Sutras say the scattering of the mind can happen in the following ways. Disease, dullness, doubt, procrastination, laziness, craving for enjoyment, delusion, inability to progress into deeper awareness, instability, and these are the obstacles to wellness. Until they are there, the Yoga Sutra adds, we will feel pain, depression, disturbance in the limbs, and uneven breathing. And to get rid of them, is the practice of one principle. The practice of one principle is about giving the mind an anchor. An anchor means the ship will not be tossed around by the winds. You could have problems in business, office, finance, relationship or socially that can create chaos. But you are anchored and so psychologically you are fine. 